Can, can we talk a little bit about, you know, Nicola Sturgeon's arrest and then release? It's not a arrest. <laughs> I'm just here for the banter. <laughs> I'm here for the coffee. <laughs> and the lamp. We will um, get harangued if we don't actually show the lamp. <laughs> it's like, that's not even a... That's a rock fact. <laughs> yeah. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to another Sunday Roast. And we have a special guest with us today, Jenny from Random Scottish History. Jenny, can you tell us a little bit about yourself for anyone who is from is unfamiliar with your channel? Yeah, uh, I'm Jenny. I run Random Scottish History, uh, which is at rsh.scot. And really, I just republish old out-of-print books, pre-20th century literature to try and allow people to get to know their country a wee bit better. I've always been very open about the fact I was brought up a no voting Tory and it was actually just reading some of Scotland's history and getting to know the place a wee bit better that entirely changed my perspective. So we now have the website, we've got eight publications, there's 170 odd videos on YouTube and there are podcasts out there of a lot of the YouTube videos. So, and I exist purely because of my patrons, so I'll say hi to them just now. Alex! Can you tell us a bit about yourself for anyone who is new to the show? Hi, I'm Alex. I'm also known as Political X, and I'm also a historian. And Max, could you introduce yourself, please? Hi, guys. My name is Max. I run the Robespierre channel, where I talk about British politics and Brexit in particular. Alex, what's our first topic for today? Let's talk question time, because that was some seriously messed up propaganda by the BBC. Uh, I know there was a complaints campaign also put forward towards stopping the BBC doing such a insane program essentially five guests and an audience the audience was made up of brexiteers uh, from various parties 70 percent, at least according to the show were still pro-brexit 20 percent were supposedly against brexit now they changed their mind and 10 percent were still unsure about brexit so they've gone from being sure to unsure which is fascinating and the panel was made up of five not including presenter fiona bruce and from that five, we also had basically three Brexiteers, an economist that was sort of in the middle ground. I, I couldn't imagine Adam Parson agreeing with him in any way, shape or form. And we also had Alistair Campbell, who was literally there on his own. And you could tell he had to bite his tongue because he was literally surrounded. And I don't blame you for voting. I blame them for lying to you. They lied. They've not been properly held to account. Johnson's gone for lying about COVID. He's still not properly been held accountable for Brexit. And we're all of us paying a higher price in our cost of living and everything else because of the lies that we were told. But there was um, there were there were two interesting. Well, there were three interesting ones that I saw. So first was there was a businessman um, who was just so, uh, he voted. Uh, obviously, he voted for Brexit because it, the, the the audience was made entirely of uh, people who voted for Brexit. Uh, I, I don't call them Brexiteers because uh, for me, Brexiteer is somebody who now thinks Brexit was a good idea. And that could be somebody who voted Remain or voted for Brexit. Because a lot of, I, I, after the show, I saw uh, an article in The Guardian where they said just 18% of voters st still think Brexit is a good idea, which is still massively high, I think, but 18%. But there was, yeah, so there was a businessman who had voted for Brexit and then he, uh, you probably saw it, Alex, where he, uh, was challenged by <laughs> um, was it he's he sold computer parts or he sold computers yeah. 
Yeah, and so he he was talking about the problems getting components in. Um, but Ben Habib, the former member of the Brexit Party, what what was it that Ben Habib had said to him? Or Ben Habib, I'll I'll be frank. He basically stepped in and said, "What's your problem?" The guy said, "I can't get computer components across." I've got red tape and that means I've lost money, which I then have to pass on to the customers. So there's a smaller profit margin. And Ben Habib turned around and essentially said, I don't give a stuff about your individual problems because the bigger picture is trade hasn't changed. That's literally what he said. And that's why I would call him an asshole. Um, I'll probably have to bleep this out because at the beginning of the show, <laughs> we'll get demonetized. But that's that's essentially it. What, what are your thoughts on that, Max? It's... I'm surprised he didn't go down the sovereignty route. You know, well, at least we got our sovereignty back. Um, doesn't think that. No, no, but but yeah, yeah, Ben Habib, but but he doesn't care about small business owners. He doesn't care about um, ordinary people who are impacted by this. Like for example, Jenny, I know the the Scottish fishermen generally voted against Brexit, but um, they have suffered a great deal as. Quite catastrophic. I urge ministers and the EU Commission to get round the table to get this bureaucratic nonsense calm down a bit and get goods flowing. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah, but I mean, there was that protest, it wasn't a very good protest where they end up down at Westminster. I mean, we've all just been dragged into this and even we know that Brexit, the Brexiteers are coming round to the fact that this is like this is terrible <laughs> they're realizing every time they go on holiday this is bollocks <laughs> Do you know what I mean? like, well it's it's not brexit's <laughs> fault it's the eu trying to punish britain no. oh yeah of course it is <laughs> but even should that be the case this is a really crap situation do you know what i mean like very few of us are seeing benefits as a result of this 2016 vote debt collectors yeah I... Re people who repossess houses shortly maybe maybe they're seeing a benefit yeah, don't get it. me wrong, there are people definitely seeing like financial gain for this because if there weren't, the Tories wouldn't have even considered it in the first place. Do you know what I mean? Everything they do is for financial benefit to some large corporation or other. There are definitely people making a mint from Brexit, but we're talking like the 99.5% of us are just coming up across the odd issue just every so often, whether it's in food, whether it's in prices, travel, like whatever we're all coming up against at least one yeah i'd, I'd like jenny maybe you to like... maybe i'd like you to tell us about your experience in a, in a moment but i just want to just want just go back to question time so there was there was that business owner who was told basically to shut the f up by um ben habib then there was um there was a guy who said that he <laughs> he saw people arrive in britain and then he followed them allegedly to the benefits office. I didn't know there was a benefits office. I know there's the, the job, job center, job center. Uh, the benefits office. Uh, and he he followed them to the benefits office and saw them arrive. So they arrived by plane, I believe, or on, on a ferry. And then they would go straight to the benefits office. Um, now, under the, in the comment section, everyone was saying this is impossible. Okay, this doesn't happen. But it does. But it, you would believe it if if you got all of your information from the Express or the Daily Mail or the Sun. So, or if you were the people smuggler, which yeah. could well be. That's the only other explanation. Is that <laughs> yeah. he's the one smuggling the people in and then taking them down the job centre? 
<laughs> trying it yeah, on. Maybe. But but I yeah, think oh, this way, by the way, just to, just so I can prove a point. You want yeah. to go that road? Just second left. But but I think the the best the best example the best uh, audience member had to be the the old older lady who um, was upset about health and safety standards. So she she was complaining that in Germany, I, I don't know why she chose Germany as an example, but uh, she said in Germany and France, I believe, people on roofs didn't have to follow safety standards, while in Britain, they did have to follow safety standards. And that made, I don't know, building houses more expensive or something. And that's why she voted to leave, to have, I believe, lower safety standards. Now, in what's interesting about all of this is that for the const- during the construction of the the um the football stadiums in Qatar 6500 people died now not all of those of course are people who fell off buildings or were are related directly to the building but also some of it was probably due to the heat but do you know how many people died in the construction of the olympic stadium in london in 2012 is it, is it 12 not less zero zero that's because of health and safety standards. That's why they're so important. Now, if individual countries don't implement them, that's that's a different issue. But that's nothing to do with the EU. But this but this lady said, yeah, we I voted to leave so we would have, I presume, we could have lower safety standards. That's a brave stance for her to take. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I, I don't think she was up on many roofs recently. I did. I did point out though earlier, just before we came on air. Ben Habib was complaining about 5.7 million people being on benefits, which would technically, by the looks of it, I would assume include her. So he would have her up on that roof or he would have her catching criminals. (laughs) (laughs) Trailing people going from the airport to the benefits office. (laughs) Dude thinks he's all MI5. (laughs) (laughs) But again, it's, it's it's this. Well, migration came up, didn't it, as an issue? That was another thing that Brexiteers seemed to be angry about the six hundred thousand. But interestingly, no one brought up our birth rate, which is plummeting to Japanese levels of the nineteen nineties. No one's talking about that. We have not got the ability to sustain our population because we've had a decade or decade and a half of low birth rate, and it doesn't help when the economy is crap and there's no social welfare support or limited and it's it's interesting to see that they're going well we don't want more people but we want social care and health care and you're going well where are you going to get these people from you've got to encourage the youth generation to have more kids but you don't want to give them support and welfare i mean i heard someone on lbc going mad this week i'm 70 something yes and i'm fed up with having to subsidize cheap mortgages for overprivileged 20 and 30-something during millennials. So the last 10 years, I started work in 1963, which is probably about before you were born. Mm-hmm. But I've been paying my taxes ever since. I've been putting money aside because I've been told you've got to put money aside, put some kind of pension for your old age. I did. But what happens when I get to be 65? I suddenly have to start subsidizing mortgages for other people and have nothing to live on. So uh, that, that really is do the you point mean, of my beef. I'm do, really fed up with it. Do you mean subsidising because of the very low interest rates so your That's savings right. not being worth as much as you had hoped? I'm getting 0.55%, well, it's going up a little bit now, 0.55% on my, or, 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 on, which is the best I could get on my uh, savings. And people are getting 
mortgages for one and a half, two percent. Well, hooray for them. However, bear in mind that when they took out their mortgages a year, two, three, four, five years ago, they had to do a stress test, which meant that while your mortgage might not be one and a half percent for long, it might go up to four or five percent. So they had to work out sums. Could they afford it when it did go up? Well, it has gone up. Well, tough. They've got to do with a little bit less of the replacing the mobile phone every year for the most fashionable one and start paying me for the, to borrow my money to pay for their mortgage. Okay, Dewey. Do I sound nasty enough? Or I'm, a, I'm a grumpy old bugger, I know. You don't sound nasty. Uh, you sound like a man who's had a, a decade of not having his savings make any money for him. So I, I understand your frustration. Um, but I don't think the young people involved uh, set out to hurt you. Uh, that would be the difference. They obviously neglect and forget to mention that wages now are 11 times that of a mortgage. <laughs> and it was in the 1980s. But yeah, yeah um, houses were much cheaper and, you know, wage, and wages were increasing while wages have stagnated for the last, I think, 13 years or 15 years. No, no, no. Just just on the issue of Brexit, I was wondering, Jenny, can you tell us a little bit about your experience of Brexit? Because yours was maybe something that many people may not have heard of, a particular problem. Yeah, I hadn't heard anything about this specific change in travel. I had booked to have a trip to Italy uh, along with Alex, um, my husband, and... Um... Not married. No. <laughs> Just to be clear. Because <laughs> otherwise my partner... Is I, I, a different Alex. Alex. Different Alex. <laughs> different Alex. Great name, by the way. Great name. Mm. So um, we're all packed, we're all everything sorted. They've got um, my passport details, everything has come back. Good to go, let's, we're all packed. We get ourselves to, to Edinburgh uh, for a like super early morning like flight. It was like 5.50 in the morning or something. Get to Edinburgh airport and everything's fine. And we get on the plane, but as we're getting on the plane, the Swiss port, last, Swiss port person just the one that checks your passport before you board a plane. She's like, your passport's expired, by the way. But she doesn't stop me from going on to play. And I'm like, no, it's not. Like, it, it ends in eight months. I've got eight months left on my passport. And there's something kind of like three months, six month thing where you have to have that amount on the end before you travel. Anyway. Yeah, that's fine. I had eight months at the end of my passport. It was fine. Yeah, the date was so, sometime in 2024. Yeah. Yeah, like February next year or May of next year. And then, um, so I'm like, you you have to explain this to me. And she, all she said was, your passport's expired. I hope you're not traveling anywhere else. And I'm like, this is all so bizarre. So I got on the plane and I'm starting to freak out a little bit. And Alex is like, well, we'll ask the flight attendant, like if she has an idea. So we show a passport to the flight attendant and the flight attendant's like, no, it looks absolutely fine. Um, I can't see that there's a problem with it at all. And uh, I would complain about that Swiss port lassie for getting you all freaked out kind of thing, you know. I'm like, right, okay, but okay. I'm just feeling like this is a very strange scenario. So we end up in Stansted. Do all the checking online, everything's fine. And then we get around and I'm told, you're not going anywhere. Your passport's expired. I'm like, right, I've already had a hint of this. And I need someone to explain what's going on because I have eight months left. She's like, no, Brexit. <laughs> I'm like, what? <laughs> She's like, 
Brexit means your passport's expired. And I'm like, I, I'm, right, talk to me like I'm a child, you know? So uh, she's like, okay, so it now has to be within 10 years of date of issue. And back up until 2013, when you got your passport renewed, if you had any time left on your old passport, it would get added to the 10 years of your new passport. So technically, 10 years from the date of issue for my passport was a week and a half before I travelled. So my passport had expired like a week and a half before my trip was due to happen. I'm like, what the? Fine. Okay. You know, you can't change it, you know, and I'd never heard, no one had, I'd never come across any, like, information anywhere that was hinting towards something like that. So I send Alex on, because I'm like, well, one of us might enjoy, might as well enjoy themselves. So he heads on and uh, had an excellent few days in Florence, which I missed out on, but, you know, and so I have to get back up to Scotland. So I, I get a train from Stansted and, um, and it's like 140 quid just to get me back up to Scotland. The flight provider to get to, they weren't willing to recompense any part of my flight that I couldn't yeah. take. It was all my fault. Okay. So um, I took train up and King's Cross station was evacuated for no known reason. I just make my train and uh, there's been a issue with a bridge. So we have stop bridges and then crawl over the bridge. And then just as soon as we get over the bridge, a tree had down the lanes over the rail up at Carlisle and, and we were stuck. So I got in two hours late, like to Glasgow and I was just, I posted a picture of myself just looking frazzled, <laughs> just like, what the fuck is going on? <laughs> you know, like, so 200 but, but, but there is later I get a new passport and I literally is... timed it so that on collection of my passport, it was a taxi straight to the airport and onto another flight, like to go and try and catch up on my holiday. Sorry, how how did you get a passport that quick? I heard waiting times for six months to a year or something. They got rid of the backlog, or is it better in Scotland? I don't know. Um, so what I did on the train because I had so much time on the fucking train back up to Glasgow, I'm just reapply. I'm investigating, like applying for a passport. I'm just looking at everything that I can find as a way to fast track the thing. And um, I went onto their site and it just seemed to be pretty easy. Just literally priority um, passport application. And you fill it all in. I had a passport photo in my wallet. So I just took a picture of that, cropped it, sent it. It was approved. Um, and yeah, by the time I reached Scotland, I had my appointment for, so that was the Wednesday. And I had my appointment for the Tuesday morning at the passport office to pick it up. Wow. Um, something but it was 200 pounds i mean it wasn't like a drop oh. of it was <laughs> something works in this country when you pay for it yeah that's yeah. the way the tories want to go but it, but it was a sort of happy ending that you did eventually get off <laughs> yeah and you did get to yeah. you did get to we'll not get into the way back because that had nothing no, to no. <laughs> I, I have a few Brexit stories, but they're not as dramatic as that. For example, things that, for example, Mrs. Max bought online from the UK. Really, really, really nice things, you know, and uh, what happened is things would arrive and then uh, you'd have to pay customs duty. And the problem here in Italy is that you have to pay in cash. cash. So somebody would ring the doorbell. You go out and say, oh, uh, I have a package for you. And you have to pay like 40, 46 quid. And you're like, I don't have that money on me now. Okay, then we'll come back 
in a few days time and you have to have so you can't pay by credit card you can't pay by debit cards you have to pay only in cash they'll only accept cash <laughs> been here long yeah long enough come on give me the cash so you have to go and look for cash for for something that maybe isn't you know doesn't have a huge huge value but um if you're buying clothes or something like that there's uh, customs duties now of course this didn't exist before you could simply go online buy something from the uk it would it would arrive in a few days uh, but now there are massive delays and when it arrives in many cases um, if it's not below a certain i think it's if it's under 22 euros which is about 20 pounds um, if it's uh, below that then there isn't customs duty but i i, I haven't checked on any recent uh, updates but it's about that um, but if it's above that you have to pay uh, customs duty and it can be it can be a massive amount of money as well if if you're buying something pretty expensive uh, from outside the European Union. So this is, I'm talking about people who are in in the EU in the single market. Um, if you're buying something from outside, like the US or the UK or China, you have to pay a customs duty, which can be very expensive. Now, if I decided I'm not going to pay it, it would be returned to the business uh, that sold it in the UK, and then they would have to pay the costs. So. I bet there's no benefit here for any for either side. So, so go on. This is this is my biggest fear. The EU is just looking at us as a cash cow because we're not checking anything that's coming in. And I've got a sneaking suspicion, just based on running some numbers, we're spending somewhere in the region of about fifty. We're giving about fifty billion a year in tax revenue. Uh, in like, yeah, I know, yeah, I know, isn't it? So I'm like, they don't have they they've cut off our services industry. Ben Habib thinks that we can get that back. Although he wants us to have a border, from what I can tell, in Ireland, on the island of Ireland. He wants a physical border. That's that's, that's pretty much what he wants. It's either that or he wants his cake and eating it. I couldn't quite... No one really pressed him to pinpoint exactly what he wanted. It's either he wants a hard border, which goes against the Good Friday Agreement, but he doesn't care about that. Or he wants some sort of who cares? Let's just trade and just let everything go, which is like, I don't want to pay for the membership fee, but I want access to the club. I only a pretentious. Yeah, I, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I don't know. He knows what he wants himself, because if you want if you want to like he, he say, yeah, we, we should get rid of the border in the Irish Sea. And then what? Where do you put it? But he well, doesn't want he wants a hard border. OK, then. then I, yeah, I, but... I think that's the only solution. Yeah, but it, but a hard border. The people of Ireland don't want a hard border. So he no. would, you would have a, a, a Brexiteer living in England saying, yeah, we're going to put a hard border where you don't want it. Now, the people of Ireland didn't vote in the Republic. They didn't vote for Brexit. And a majority of people in Northern Ireland voted against Brexit. So why should they listen to somebody who isn't even elected? Like he was a member of the European Parliament, but he's not elected now. He's not, he's not an MP. Why the hell was he invited on to Question Time? Yeah, but but he's he's a member of reform. He's not even elected. You know, <laughs> but we would have as much uh, reason to be on, uh, yeah. on, on question time. We're not elected either. He, he he's a guy with an opinion. That's all he is. We have pretty bad one as more well. supporters probably. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it's a joke. It's just a joke, Max. I I don't understand. I, I well, I'll give you a stat. You'll like this. I got a good stat. Uh, UK MEPs who appeared on BBC Question Time in 2010 to 20. How many do you think were pro-EU as a percentage? 
starting from as low as zero to a hundred percent. Jenny, how many think how do you think were pro EU MEPs that appeared on Question Time over the decade 2010 to 2020? Like less than 50, maybe 40, 35, 40. 40, 35 percent. Yeah, and Max? Maybe. I'd say about 10 percent. 10 percent, you think? It's quite a low figure. The answer is 1.8 percent. Zero from Labour. Hang on a minute. Hang on a minute. Com- yeah. For all those years combined? Yep, for a decade. Zero Labour MEPs. Zero SNP MEPs, zero Green MEPs. Plaid Cymru, nope. The only one they had was a Lib Dem. One Lib Dem. Voden, um, which I think was in 2016. And they had 45 UKIP MEPs, three Conservative MEPs, eight Brexit Party MEPs. 1.8%. They, they they cannot at all at any chance claim to be an impartial uh, media outlet. Not I will, any- I, I will say this: that's only MEPs. They might have balanced it in different ways. But isn't it weird that it's MEPs? Because like, if you're going to have the Brexit argument, in theory, you have to have and building up to that, you have to have at least one Brexiteer on there, which inevitably would be Nigel Farage, who I think turned up. Every um, time. <laughs> 21 times. 22 times he was on that program. You know, like... Out of 57. They, wow. It's a joke. And then we watch mm. that. They haven't had a rejoin EU party on yet. It's... Which is the only party standing for rejoin at the moment. I mean, the Labour Party member that was on there was Brexiteers of Breakfast. She was, uh, the, the the Labour MP who was on, I believe, was saying, well, yeah, we're going to make Brexit work. We've, we've got stuff in this country that's good. Services, culture, media, sport. There's loads of exports. Government hate, culture, media, and sport. We heard that with that slightly, well, we heard that with that maths comment mixed in with a transphobic comment from Rishi Sunak. He's obsessed with maths, even though, I mean, <laughs> it's arithmetic is long gone. It's a thing called a calculator, Rishi. There's a thing called a calculator. There's also a thing called AI, which can now run verbal mathematics, verbal equations, you know, like train leaves at this time, train leaves at this time. When would they meet in the middle? If they're both going at different speeds and whatever. But culture, AI can't build that. I've seen it try. The, the music industry. You know, I, I had a musician on recently on my channel and he was just talking about the damage Brexit is doing. You know, the, the music industry is worth so much to Britain. And what did they focus on in 2020? Fishing, which is big as, as big as, and I don't know if this is true, but somebody told me as big as the lawnmower industry. You know? uh, yes, I think that was The Economist. I think that was David Hennig who we had on the show said that. And the CPTTP, which they keep, they brought up in question time. That's the equivalent of toilet paper, which I now call it. I call it the TP agreement. It's a toilet paper agreement. That's how much it's worth. It's worth the equivalent of our toilet paper because we already had those agreements. It was funny that got brought up in, oh, we've got all these new trade agreements. It's like, no, no, no. You've already got them with Canada, Japan, Chile, I think, and Mexico. 
So, but, but when you were saying about question time in the past, like what they should have had was Nigel Farage on one side when he was a member of the European Union, a member of the, sorry, the European Parliament, and they should have had another MEP on the other side. That would have been a balanced argument because whatever Farage was saying, the journalist or whoever was on the other side didn't have the experience. They didn't know the ins and outs of the European Parliament. So if you had an MEP on the other side, they would say, no, that, uh, Nigel, that's not how it works. But he was free to say whatever he wanted. He'd be, he would say, oh, look at all these uh, committees they have. It's a waste of money. It's a waste of time. Um, you know, all, all it is is a talking shop. They don't actually do anything. And he went unchallenged because the journalist was, OK, well, I'm not supposed to ask him questions. He probably knows. And, the, and if you had, you know, a, an economist on, well, they don't know the ins and outs of the European Parliament. So they'd be able to challenge him on economics, but they wouldn't be able to challenge him on the workings of the Parliament. You still hear it today. People claim it's a dictatorship. And you're like, what are you talking about? We were in it. We could make votes. We've got less democracy now. I keep saying this. There's 380 people. Ministers can now overwrite parliament with a signature on a piece of paper. They bypass parliament because parliament gave them the rules because parliament can pass any rules. It's an authoritarian state. I mean, we could segue nicely into Scotland. They've told Scotland, no, you can't leave, which the EU couldn't do, but they can. So how does that work? Jenny? It's a union of equals, no, Jenny? Yeah, it's a union of equals. Everyone's, everyone's fair. We've got more democracy in the the British Union than the European Union, haven't we, Jenny? Oh, oh, I'm staring up a yeah. hornet's nest. Yeah, no. No, still <laughs> the least represented, most underfunded, uh, most taxed part of the UK. So, we, nothing's, changed. nothing's changed. Only now we have less support because Brexit. The businesses have all been affected. There's just, I'm fairly positive that things are going to work themselves out. Um, I've, I've said it a lot, but there are a lot of impatient people out there. And they're going to keep stirring the pot and they're going to keep like railing against the people that are actually trying to do a thing just because they're not doing a thing fast enough, you know. But we're not going to see any change in five years. I don't, I think that we will spend that time making contacts. I think that our best chance here is to have uh, the UN involved, have countries recognise Scotland as an entity who deserves the resumption of its full self-determination. That, that's all we really need is for recognition to be made transparent by com by countries just willing to come out and say the thing, you know, publicly, you know, announce, listen. Sure, because we're doing a lot of um, relations, uh, international relations stuff at the moment, which you can see because the papers are full of people railing against Scotland, uh, taking on too much, well, they don't feel like Scotland has a right to, to promote itself abroad, you know, like that's for Westminster do, because obviously they do that so well. I think <laughs> maybe 10 disease. years we'll maybe see something, but I think we have to start just trusting that there are people uh, in power and with the capability to get us where we're going. They, they have the reins. And we just have to just trust that they know what they're doing. But on the other hand, they also have to be as transparent as they're able to be because they have to get in front of the arguments of the distractors. They have to be able to say, we have no financial issues. Here are our financials. Go through them. We don't care. Look, we've spent everything exactly how we should have. Everything's accounted for, you know. There's no issue here. They need to 
get out in front of the arguments because if you pay even 10% notice to social media, you can see where the backlash is going to come from. You can see what the next distraction talking point is going to be. So it's not going to be hard for them to try to wee team together to just focus on that and transparency, you know. Just let them get on. But I think we're we're looking at a decade before um, anything material occurs. I don't know that we're going to get anything sooner than that. And In I'm terms patient. of economics or you or, or that Scotland yeah, being able because to we, have a referendum? Yeah, we, we are <laughs> stuck in the mire metaphor. We're, we're, we're bet until we are able to either secure some kind of EFTA deal, which is a possibility for Scotland, or rejoin the EU, which is also a possibility for Scotland. There's no one really coming out going, that is absolutely never a possibility. You're never going to be able to re-enter. There's going to be hurdles put in your way. No. The only hurdles that we've seen put in our way are from Westminster, not from the mm. European Union. Mm-mm. So we have... Which, which, if you joined, you could leave whenever you want. But in yeah. the UK, but you're forced to stay. We have to have the self-determination in order to then strike the international deals because that's where the Treaty of, the Treaty of Union is actually being stuck to, in a sense, here that the Westminster government was to be the imperial parliament and deal with international relations on behalf of Scotland and England. So Scotland and a lot of pro self-determinationists in Scotland, uh, those that are all on side um, with a a dissolution of the, the union, they actually haven't really wrapped their heads around the fact that Holyrood, as nice as it is to have it there and have the devolved powers, is nothing more than a branch office of Westminster. And Westminster have been proving that fact recently. You pass a bill, Westminster comes down and goes, no, you don't get that. Bottle returns green, nah, we're getting in the way of your recycling now because we feel like we, we want to do that. You know, just they're, they're proving the point that we're not much more than a branch office and we can't really operate outside of those bounds. We haven't the authority. And the authority is going to come from outside factions, other countries who are willing to say a thing because once a thing is said, there's the potential for the thing to happen, you know? So we just need countries to say we're on side with Scotland. We believe that they can join EU. We believe they have a choice of EFTA. We believe that they can do it by themselves and they have full right to have control over their own borders and finances and not be interfered with by, by a foreign government down at Westminster. And um, that's what we need. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong. I've never heard the SNP make the statement that it's a dictatorship in Westminster. Have I, have I missed out? Have I missed something? I've never heard that precise mm. word. No, I don't think that they'd have used that term. They're more diplomatic than that, I think, in <laughs> the main. <laughs> no, I just wanted to ask a question. This is a question for maybe, you know, a, a, a unionist from the Labour Party or the Tories in Scotland or Liberal Democrats in Scotland would be... Um, how can Scotland become independent? Because, like, is it is it through a referendum? Is it uh, through just a um, a de facto referendum through an election? Like, like they've ne- they're never asked the question: How can Scotland become independent? They talk about well, there was a vote, you know, a generation ago, and it's once in every generation. But what what is actually the process? What like can, first of all, can Scotland become independent? I think that would be the first question. Can Scotland become independent? That's the question I'd love to ask a unionist in Scotland. Can Scotland become independent? And then what is the process? 
Now, I've never heard anyone ask that question and I've never heard anyone answer that question. Representative of the SNP, Jenny. <laughs> I'm really not. <laughs> don't don't <laughs> believe this guy. <laughs> no. I don't know how to answer this. Um, you're not hearing it asked and answered in Scotland, but after the Supreme Court decision, the decision that said we weren't a colony and therefore we had no recourse, but by making this decision somehow seemed to make us appear more of a colony by... So, so, the, so the answer would be no. Well, so, no, no, so it's, in Scotland there's no positive case for the Union. We know this, right? The, the, the answer is always a straight up, no, Scotland can't leave the Union. And it seems to be more for stubbornness than for logical, kind of critical thinking reasons, you know? Like, they're not really looking into the, the positives and negatives in order to be able to make a, an informed decision on the thing. It's an emotional decision from the unionists up here. So they're going to say no, and then they're not going to be able to back that up like in any kind of significant way. But we saw after the Supreme Court uh, decision that the SNP had like five or six questions at the Prime Minister's questions, and they made use of them in an identical manner just to make the point. They stood up one by one and said, what is our route to leave the union? No answer. We're better together is the answer. Fantastic. That doesn't answer. So the next person stands up. Hiya. Uh, just wondering, is there a way that we could maybe do a thing to be able to leave the union? We're better together. Ah, oh, right. But that wasn't an answer. Here, my colleague will maybe get, is there a way for Scotland to leave the union? <laughs> and it went on like that. For every single person that had a question, there was no issue they wanted answered more at that point after the Supreme Court decision. No, we're not giving you a route out, we're better together, you know? Aren't they using Remainer rhetoric? Yeah, yeah it's, it's been really weird up here to be able to see the, the Brexit arguments and referendum in the same light as the, the referendum for Scottish self-determination that took place a couple of years pre previous to that. And we've been able to watch how it's almost backwards the, the Brexit votes, that a lot of the arguments that the Brexiteers were using were exactly the arguments that the Scots were using in order to leave the Union two years previously. Um, so essentially... It's, it's very strange for the same people to have a, the polar opposite view of what is in effect just a, another Union, the ability to either stay in or leave a Union. because, I mean, the economic damage would be huge. Or... Everyone. Well, I mean, everyone. Like, like, I'll be more. I'll be more diplomatic than that. That's a bad way of phrasing it. I think the the economic damage to the United Kingdom would be huge. I think the economic damage to England would be significant. I think you would have a downturn in Scotland. But if you then applied to the EU, we've seen with other countries that have had similar issues of, uh, right. of uh, separation from a, is this in the event of scottish self-determination you're talking about in the event of, in the event of success okay. you would see it everyone does like so you could look at the czech republic sure. uh czech czechoslovakia you can see that there was an immediate downturn because they separated they set up two parliaments czech republic and slovakia but once they joined you could see that there was an economic upturn that happened within about a seven-year period and as a result, you can turn around and say, you might have that, but then you'll have that. 
And of course, the big difference with Scotland is when you look at it in an economic perspective of and compare it to Czechoslovakia and the Czech Republic and Slovakia, you can see that you are far ahead of either Czech Republic or Slovakia. So, for example, your banking and services industry is far ahead. The only thing that would be probably contentious or concern would be the border with the U- with England and Scotland. How would there that are options for that? There are so but interestingly, many options for that. Th- there are options. There are always options. But interestingly, you would probably see an upturn in trade with Northern Ireland because you'd have easier access to Northern Ireland and you'd have easier access to the EU. So it, it's it's very interesting to see what it is. Well, well, some, it well some might out there might have seen me as a pessimist when I'm saying that I don't think there's going to be any change in five years, like other than, you know, international relations, that I don't think we'll see anything pertinent until for a decade, you know. My feeling post-self-determination is completely different. I don't believe it's going to take us the seven years. I mean, we're going to be, if you think of how much, and Hamza Yusuf has just recently come out um, with a video that I was literally just saying to Max that he, he had to come out and say this thing, he had to repeat it, and then he literally did it, like, within 24 hours, you know. He was saying that it's, Scots literally have been able to mitigate so much of the, the issues that come out from Westminster, societal issues in terms of impoverishing people and denying them welfare, etc. that um, the Scottish government has been able to mitigate so many of those uh, insidious issues throughout the, the Scottish like, societies, the, the countries, uh, the towns and cities, sorry. Um, they've managed to kind of really do a really good job at that. They've also been able to keep education free. They've managed to keep healthcare free and free from privatization in the main, unlike um, what we're seeing down south. They're having been able to do all of this with this amount that we get back from this amount that we send. The moment we get self-determination, we have this to spend instead of this. You have your own banking industry. And we've already done an exceptional job of using this, Mm. you know? So, and we've been fettered so long that should the Scottish government get their hands on this, their habit would be to literally make them one of the most economically sound and um, well-budgeted governments on the planet. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? Because they've been constrained for so long that with this amount, think what think of the possibilities. Do you know what I mean? And they're not likely to just blow it all on tests and trace systems that don't work, and blow enough to have sent the Mars rover up. I mean, just spaffing it up a wall. Do you know what I mean? Just getting rid of like billions of pounds. You're not going to see that via a Scottish government with full self determination. I think that we're going to be like something like kind of like taking a follow like in terms of politics and economics and that i think we could do really well COVID, and i don't COVID's think it would take your seven years you've nicely segued into covid which i wasn't necessarily expecting to talk about but the inquiry did come up and you brought it up and it's also to do with scottish independence if the government in the in westminster decides to wants to follow a policy of herd immunity which it did you've got to follow a policy of herd immunity if the government decides that during a pandemic they want to have the borders open you have to follow that, even if it's totally insane and it's corporate manslaughter. And it was interesting, you were just talking about, interestingly, that we've had a track and trace system. We had it with HIV. But for some reason, they decided not to use that system 
or develop it further for a pandemic. But instead, they went and tried to build a brand new one from scratch, which completely failed. Most people don't know that there's a track and trace system of HIV in the in the UK. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's pretty That's shocking news to me. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, it's, I think it's existed for over 10 years. They haven't developed anything like that for over two, three decades because they don't give a crap about the public and the poor. The the, the point I was going to get at was the ENCODE inquiry. According to Cameron and Osborne, spending less on the NHS means a better NHS. Do, do you accept, Mr Cameron, that the health budgets over the time of your government were inadequate and led to a depletion in its ability to provide an adequate service? Um, I, I don't accept that, um, neither on a sort of big picture level or yes. on a small picture level. I mean, the big picture level, I don't think you can separate the decision and the necessity of getting the budget deficit down and having a, a, a reasonable debt to GDP ratio so you can cope with future crises. I don't think you can separate that from um, the funding of the health service or indeed anything else. I mean, if you lose control of your debt and you lose control of your deficit and you lose control of your economy, you end up cutting the health service. That's what happened in Greece. That's what happened in countries that did lose control um, of their finances. So I don't think you can separate the two. Thoughts? Facts. Oh God! I, I've said this before. It's about pushing more and more people into the private, private, the private sector. It's about um, and, and you know when people think of the private sector, private healthcare, they think of private hospitals, and it's not always the case. In many cases, it's you have the same GP, sorry, the same uh, NHS doctor working privately and y- using a space in a public hospital. So, but it's 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 about. We we don't care about the NHS, so we would prefer people just to go privately. Um, and I think that's been the push for some time. But it's not just about healthcare; it's also other aspects within healthcare. Sorry, within the NHS, for example, you know, cleaning services or um, maintenance or things like that. A lot of this has been privatized as well. So you know, there have been stories of people. Um, there was a time when when you went into hospital, you were you were delivered to a surgery whatever in a wheelchair by by somebody who was hired you know hired and paid by the nhs but this has all been outsourced to private contractors um and we see also the the problems with nursing where they also because of brexit um the nhs can't get the nurses the they need in england and wales so what they're doing is they're uh outsourcing this to agency staff and of course, the agencies are making huge amounts of money out of this because they, you know, you have an NHS nurse which is on whatever amount per year, twenty-two thousand starting out or something like that, uh, and then you have a contracted nurse, and in some cases they're paying like thousands a week for these for this staff. But the nurse isn't earning the money; the agency is, and this is this is uh, this is what privatization. I think this is the main part of the privatization, not so much about sending people into uh, private clinics, but um, the, the the privatization within the NHS itself. So when people say, well, you know, where is all this money going? It's going into these private uh, organizations, these private companies. They're the ones who are you know, claiming or taking, uh, taking in, sorry, these are the ones who are taking uh, a, a huge slice out of the NHS budget. So, yeah, it, it's about pushing more and more people into the private sector uh, when it comes to healthcare, but also privatization within the NHS itself. And 
it's going to be it's going to take a mammoth task to it's going to be a mammoth task to to undo that. It's not something you you're going to see in one parliament, even if Labour said, "Yeah, we're going to undo the privatisation of the NHS." They spend less under the coalition than Margaret Thatcher, the milk snatcher, and they're telling you that austerity isn't the thing that caused the pandemic. Because why would they admit culpability? Yeah, because that would then lead to a potential charge of corporate manslaughter. I, I said, like, what is the point of a government if it doesn't look after the health and education and welfare of its citizens? What is the point of having a government? I, I was trying to think of a villain. Is it Bane from Batman? <laughs> Thanos from the MCU? Zod from Superman? I, I mean, uh, the closest I can come up with is Burke from the movie Aliens, who seems to be more <laughs> yes. interested in profit and and getting to the number one spot than than the lives of others around him, which is telling. There was also a um, doctor. That was on LBC. I've unfortunately forgotten his name. It's, I think, Maron, I think it is. He basically uh, specializes in population and disease. And he was basically saying, if you came up with a hypothesis that they were trying to break the NHS or privatize it, this, and that was the hypothesis, everything they're doing is towards the privatization to make it look like it's broken down. So they have to step in and go, right, socialism doesn't work. Let's eradicate it, which they all seem to hate. Um, Jenny. I mean, in terms of like the NHS in Scotland, it's it's not going the privatisation route in quite the same way as the English is. <sighs> I mean, I, I follow a lot of people on Twitter, so there's um, I was just looking up her Twitter there because I wanted to to make sure I'd got it right. So it's Dr. Julia Grace Patterson on Twitter. She's at Drew Julia Grace, and um, she is really very good at keeping people up to date on the privatisation issue and the MPs that are bought and sold for uh, the purposes of NHS privatisation. Um, so she, she makes for a really good account to follow if you want kept up to date on, on everything, everything surrounding that. In Scotland, our issue comes from Brexit. We need the staff, we need the, the nurses in, but also, it's compounded with Westminster's already standing um, efforts to stop immigration, you know, um, where Scotland needs immigration. We welcome immigration. We're totally inclusive. Uh, Scottish nationalism isn't the same as other nationalisms. Other nationalisms seem to be quite exclusive and um, it's a very much our country for us, screw you, kind of patriotism. Scotland wants people from everywhere to come and live here and you're an honorary Scot at the moment you land. Do you know what I mean? Like this, we're, we are going to do our best to help and support a person, you know. We've been trying to maintain that against everything Westminster's been trying to do to stop it. So it's not so much privatisation that's an issue in Scotland. So I'd not want to, like... Like, for just, just to clarify, um, immigration is a reserved matter. So the Scottish Parliament don't have control over immigration. No. Yeah. No, and we, we have a lot of need for immigration. Like, we're only like five million of a population, you know, and obviously, like, that that's from the back of a historical 
uh, attempt which you know, to get rid of as much of it as possible you know yeah but like it's but it i think it must be extremely frustrating for the the scottish parliament because they would say look we would like to bring in people to to work yeah. in the nhs to work in social care we, we could yeah. send us we could we could uh we could try and get a section 30 from westminster which would allow the scottish government to take control of immigration even for a limited amount of time but yeah. the westminster would say no we're not going to give that <laughs> But do you know the person that actually highlighted those um, issues more than any other kind of recently, so to speak, was a Scottish Labour leader, Richard Leonard, <laughs> because every time he would stand up at First Minister's questions, he would go, you're not doing this thing. You have to do this thing. This thing needs sorted. Fix this. And Nicola Sturgeon only just had to stand up every single time and go, that's not an issue that we're able to deal with. That's like reserved to Westminster to deal with. So if you want us to, to do this thing, like come over, help us like gain our self-determination, help us gain the right to dictate or determine that issue. And I will get in about it, no bother. You know, every single time he stood up, like <laughs> had no idea what was devolved or not. So he made a really good kind of unwilling participant in propaganda for Scotland. You know, just going. But but, I, but I'm also thinking like I just just as you're saying that, but I'm also mm. thinking about London for where Alex, you're in London, and you mm. know the mayor of London, uh, Sadiq Khan, has you know he's welcome, he's welcoming immigration, but of course his hands are tied as well. Of course, Scotland and London are two separate things, but the I think the openness to immigration is similar, and. You know, mm. they would lo- London would would love to have the ability to say, yeah, we're going to issue more visas to bring people in. But of course, it's another case of the tail wagging the dog, where the Tories are are chasing these racist and bigoted vote at the expense of everyone else. The economic problems that have been created by the Tory government and by, frankly, capitalism. Instead of taking issue with that, they've just gone foreigners. It's and easy. even the ones that are related or have a heritage that's more direct in a few generations of their parents, grandparents, great-grandparents being immigrants have turned around and said, no, 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 it's it's foreigners coming over. There's too many. But it doesn't deal with the, the key problem, which I've been going on about for, for weeks. What's happened to Japan in the 1990s? Shinzo Abe couldn't fix the economic problems. It improved the economy through socialist policies and migration. But it didn't resolve it because the population's shrinking and we've got similar numbers. Even if you put in policies now to encourage more children to be born, it doesn't work like that. This is a decade, two decade problem. It's long term and no one's talking about it. And it's, it's the same issues with Brexit. There's issues and we've got two parties that are in complete denial. I, I often think, you know, imagine if you'd had a football team in the Premier League and you basically said it, we, we could set up a better league. We're going to force three other teams out to come and join us in that league against their will. <laughs> and, and and they're going to come in and we're going to have a great league. In fact, our league is going to be better than the Premier League. And it's just a four-team thing. And instead, you end up with less money. And the, the main culprit of all of this is in the relegation zone out of that top four. Like it's, it's You'd be sacked on the spot if you pulled any of this stuff. You'd be sacked. It's just mad, and it was. It's it's, it's interesting the the how it all ebbs and flows, and they'll you know they'll take whatever argument suits them. So they'll use Remainer arguments for Scotland, but they'll use racist arguments for the EU, and you're just like, what is this? It's a joke. 
that's it that's is. what it is and it's it's the faults of capitalism and extinguishing socialist policies but you that, just have to know that everything is going to turn out exactly how it is regardless <laughs> so you might as well just watch it happen you know like and survive as best you can <laughs> but yeah. if you were in the premier league you said right we've got all this investment it's going to be brilliant we've got this brand new team brand new manager manager comes in we're going to win the champions league and we're going to come first in the premier league and then the relegation zone what would happen to that manager and what would probably happen to that owner what would happen the Gone. fans would go nuts <laughs> they'd go nuts and imagine if they came in and they said oh we don't want as many foreign players and then they bring in more foreign players the fans were going nuts I, I, I was thinking about the car analogy that I keep coming up with. Uh, when, it, when it came to selling a Brexit, imagine if you'd gone around and said you can have any car you want. I instantly thought of The Simpsons where Home is allowed to, to construct his own car from scratch. <laughs> but you're literally going around to the public and say you can have any car you want. And one person goes, well, I want monster, monster truck wheels. Another one says, and they're going, yeah, you can have that. You can have monster truck wheels. Another one's going, oh, actually, I want it quite small, like a mini. And you go, yeah, you can have that. And then another one says, I want a horn. I want five different horns all over the car. Yeah, you can have that. And they construct this monstrosity car. They drive up. You want a bigger engine? Yeah, you can have a bigger engine. I mean, it's just... And and it's going to be cheaper than any other car. (laughs) That's what they told as well. It'd be cheaper cheaper to run with monster truck wheels and a smaller engine. (laughs) What has the EU ever done for us? Can you come up with something off the top of your head as to what the EU has done for us? Every two streets, there's a freaking building with a plaque on it saying it's been funded by the freaking EU. Like, <laughs> oh, infrastructure. <laughs> it's been great, you know? Like, I don't I took, know. I took, uh, when Jenny was here in Italy, I took her to see a castle that, was, uh, that it's uh, maintained by funding from the EU. Uh, I yeah. think if this ca- if this funding wasn't available, the, you wouldn't be able to visit most of the of um, the castle or the walls of this city. So a few years ago, I visited the Titanic Museum. Titanic Museum in Belfast is co-funded by the European Union. So if that oh. money wasn't available, I, I don't know if the museum would exist. But yeah, thanks to the EU, people are able to enjoy a better experience at the Titanic Museum. I'd say we we had a stronger pound, which meant imports were cheaper and the cost of living was cheaper. And the single market. And the single market. No, no, no paperwork. would last until the experiment. Right, on that note, we're done. Bye bye. Exciting story from the files of Police Squad.